Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, this is Benjamin Boyce. Welcome to my ongoing series on gender, sexuality, and transition. Today's guest is Jesse, who is a member of the Peak Resilience Project, which are a group of four young women, four so far, who ex- uh, experimented with being trans and then desisted um, kind of in their early life. Jesse gets into her experience uh, going to these school clubs and kind of getting indoctrinated, that might be too strong of a word, into a certain frame of mind that kind of uh, more or less possessed her and that she decided was not useful for her. And so she walked away from it. So this is another lovely young woman, and I find these all very powerful and informative, and I don't need to tell you how to feel about this. Here's Jesse. I really appreciate how all four of us come from a very unique transition journey. So the different things that we discovered about ourselves and also the issues we discovered within the realm of trans identity are so unique and diverse that even in our conversations with each other, I I have so many realizations that I didn't even think about before. Um, so for me specifically, I think things that are significant about my journey that I believe Dagny, Kiara, and Helena didn't particularly touch on was the influence of having direct social influence um, on one hand for the for my, both my transition as well as um, my intense desire to be a strong like public activist figure in the trans sphere. Um, mm. That was something that I devoted a lot of time and energy to, and I feel like it's interesting to talk about that and share that, um, especially because I was so young when that happened. Um, so I'm only 20 now. <laughs> You're 20. And how how long would you say your trans journey uh, lasted? I guess that you're still involved in it in a way. In a way, in yeah. In detransition. But the transition itself, like from like the initiation on your um, the mental sphere to whatever culmination in actually going through the trans health, what was the period of time? I started identifying as non-binary in my sophomore year of high school, and I was about 14 around then. Um, and then that progressed after about six months to identifying as a trans man. Um, so from about age 15 to 19, I identified as a trans man. And then in my journey into detransitioning, um, there's a brief like two to three month period where I identified as non-binary again. Um, and then I was like, nah, I think I'm just like over this hmm. as a means of describing myself. Hmm. Uh, do you still describe yourself in terms of categories like that? Not at all. I found it to be really unproductive and just in a way pretty damaging to my own personal growth because it felt like I was setting limits for all I could be or all I could experience or challenge or explore. So I don't think of myself as having like a gender identity anymore. It's more just like, I know I'm female and that is relevant sometimes, sometimes it's not. So, <laughs> huh. what initiated yeah. the um, the process then of 
becoming non-binary? What were certain phenomena that that uh, prompted you to go along that path? I think I can narrow it down to three main things. One, puberty and just the socialization of being like a young teenage girl surrounded by an ever-evolving internet social media culture that has just like risen up and then you're already comparing yourself to all these other um, peers within like your school, within your clubs, like with all these girls you see online, all these boys you see online too, especially if you have, like I did primarily like male friends because you just engage in like the same interest. Um, so I think the so- the social alienation aspect of that, just feeling like awkward and out of place and like I didn't really have some groove to fit into easily was part of it. I think the second reason was my own internal struggle. Um, I got diagnosed with like anxiety disorder at a really young age. I was literally nine. Like I was literally nine. I started having like anxiety and panic attacks at like eight or seven. Um, and was that was that related a really to school or to, um, I think it was related to early traumatic childhood experiences as well as just a genetic history of different forms of mental illness in my family. So I think it was like a combination of like both of those. Um, but from a young age, I had like a lot of issues with control and anxiety and was pretty introverted. Um, I had a lot of social anxiety, not so much anymore, but it was just hard to feel like I was in control of myself and my environment. So I feel like being in a really vulnerable mental state had a lot to do with it. Um, and then I think the third part was legitimately just feeling like a strong connection to the LGBT community, which I still do. Um, and then wanting to, cause I think around age 14 is when I started exploring, um, what label I guess I want to put on my sexuality. And I don't really label it right now because again, it kind of feels like putting myself in a box and it kind of scares me. I'm just like, I, I just want to like live my life and figure it out. Um, but I think I really wanted like a strong label to fit to. And since around when I was 14, which was six years ago, that's crazy. That's like, 2013 yeah 2013 2014 was when i noticed on social media there's a lot more um like informational guides for my peers they were like posted on tumblr or twitter like these are like the terms you should know in regards to gender identity and expression and i never even thought about something like gender identity or expression so it felt nice to have basically a guide given to me that seemed to describe some of my experiences um so yeah Outside of that context, then, of uh, being handed these tools of, of systemizing uh, identity like that, did you experience uh, gender dysphoria, um, like like a physical dysphoria? Um, I did. Beyond puberty, like maybe a little bit more than the average pubescent, perhaps? I mean, if we definitely, could that. I still do now, interestingly. Hmm. Um, yeah, it's really interesting because something that was beneficial about transitioning was that I felt like I was alleviating my dysphoria in having the version of myself that I wanted to present to others be present via a male persona. Um, So it was, I guess it wasn't necessarily always about wanting to have specific body parts minus my chest dysphoria. I had very intense like chest dysphoria and was very serious about wanting top surgery. I never got surgery, but I wasn't particularly as interested as B 
being as close to a biological male in sex as I was and just wanting to have this sense that socially others viewed me as male and valued like what I had to say, how I behaved um, and how I thought as such. And it was really distressing to me to think that I was being perceived as female in all other aspects, like regardless of that, when that kind of motivated me to think that maybe transitioning more seriously and like Hmm. more intently into a male identity would alleviate a lot of that distress. Did it? Yes and no. Did it I displace think it did. the stress? I think that's a really good word. I think it really displaced it for a bit. Um, because for a while, I would say in the first six months of my transition, so I started testosterone when I was 18 and was on testosterone for about 12 months, or not 12, 14 months, so a year and about two months. And at first I was completely ecstatic, like for about the first three months, just completely over the moon. I felt a load of relief just like wash over me. Um, and it was so much easier to socialize. I had also just started college around this time. Um, I felt like it was easier to go to class, easier to go to different groups, meet new people on campus, just kind of feel more comfortable within myself. Um, but then as those relationships started to progress in the sense of getting to know like my friends and new coworkers and classmates on like a deeper level on a more stimulating like intellectual and interpersonal level I started to feel the same kind of anxiety creep in about how um how I was appearing socially and it wasn't necessarily social anxiety because it wasn't like I had an issue like going anywhere or talking to people I, it was just a strong sense that I wasn't being as authentic as I could be so that started to ramp up the need to oh I need to start dressing even more masculine. I need to cut my hair a certain way now. I need to increase my testosterone dose. I need to do all these other things. And then it started a laundry list, essentially, of things I need to do to keep up with this new persona I was developing. Um, so then it started getting exhausting in a way. So on one hand, I got the brief social euphoria of, oh, I'm not seen as this thing I don't want to be seen as. People see me for me, actually, um, and that's really great and something I've always like strived for. But at the same time, it comes at the cost of so much emotional and mental energy spent hmm. to achieve that brief moment of social euphoria. Yeah. Did you have uh, like a sustained friendship or mentorship or somebody close to you that uh, that was outside of you but close enough to you to affirm your authenticity, like some sort of mirror in the world that uh, that wasn't like just this idea of yourself as this authentic or pursuing authenticity? Did you have a relationship that that made you feel that, oh, I'm authentic, this person's validating my identity? Hmm. I think that's interesting because I think I've realized over the past year that I've been detransitioned that I really didn't have as close or strong of supportive relationships as I thought I did at the time. So a lot of my less close friends just affirmed because I guess that's like the right thing to do. If someone is like, yeah, I'm dysphoric. Please call me by this name, these pronouns. It's like, okay, yeah, sure. Like I'm a good friend. I'll do that for you. And the people closest to me who knew more intimate details about my life and things I've gone through or just how I tend to feel or think, um, 
they actually so there's two so i it was my best friend of eight years who's actually no longer my best friend hashtag drama no i'm just kidding Uh, (laughs) 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 it's a little bit of drama um but i don't think they really understood essentially like what i was going through but also didn't have the tools to necessarily ask me questions or kind of be there to like guide me through this it was just kind of like "Mm, i don't know i think this is kind of stupid but also i guess i'll support you and i was like "Mm, okay guess I'll live with that. It was hmm. pretty unproductive. Um, and then my other particularly close relationship was with another trans guy, actually. Um, and we were extremely close and felt like we um, bonded on like a lot of similar things, shared similar feelings of dysphoria, shared similar like expressions, I guess, of our gender, um, had similar interests, we're just very close friends. And because he had transitioned so young, he thought that since I also was experiencing similar things to what he had experienced, he kind of just encouraged me further along the path towards transitioning, which on one hand isn't particularly like his fault, but it also wasn't helpful. Um, So through our relationship, he introduced me to my hometown's um, LGBT organization for youth. Um, and would take me to like their trans youth, like Tuesday nights or whatever. Mm-hmm. We would all like get together and talk for an hour. Um, and would take me to different like conferences. We had co-founded our high school's GSA together. So we had like a pretty strong, like, would that be the gay student Alliance? Yeah. Okay. Except we were super woke. So we called it our gender sexuality Alliance. <laughs> all right on. Good job. <laughs> Cutting edge. <laughs> trying so hard it was actually like a really cool experience on one hand but again like super unproductive hmm. why because, was it unproductive um mainly because there was no pushback it was kind of like any idea that anyone had about either themselves or how other people were perceiving them weren't challenged it was just kind of affirmed immediately so for instance if let's say a new kid came in to the group for instance just as an example. Um, and this kid is like, like 13 or 14, just started a new school, um, has never had dysphoria as a child, or, and it just recently started occurring. They're really adamant about wanting to start hormones. And they're trying to talk to their parents and they're just like talking to us about it for support. The response from the adults in the room would generally always be, well, we can talk to your parents about helping you start on hormones or you can talk to them. Um, I know a really great doctor. Here's their card kind of thing. Hmm. Opposed to let's just talk about our feelings together. Cause that was kind of the point. Um, since we were all like kids and like the adults around us were just volunteers, just making sure we weren't doing anything ridiculous. Um, while they're so, not injecting skepticism into the youth or giving yeah. them critical tools. Basically. Yeah. Hmm. So just saying, oh, well, since you suddenly feel your dysphoria, then you are trans. And it's really important that we tell your parents that you are trans and you need hormones. Hmm. All because of like an instant just expression of a feeling that we really have no idea how severe or how intense or how serious or even like what way to go. Um, So it's just like that kind of, Hmm. I don't know, just like a very like brief way of approaching a very complex and intense Thing to experience. Yeah. So let me let me make a hypothetical. Um, 
It seems like if a young person's experiencing stress on a certain level and they um, they they want community, they want affirmation, um, they can go online and kind of find I'm not I'm not disparaging this particular group. It just seems like this could be a pattern of behavior that is repeatable. Um, but they go on online and they find this cool group, this LGBTQ group or this gender sexuality group. And it's got a lot of different lingo and um, it's got all these different uh, things that you get to learn. And uh, and you go in there and you're automatically affirmed. Uh, your, your experience is automatically kind of translated. So you're given certainty on what you're feeling um, and then kind of a direction in which to go with that. And as long as... Um, I bet, I guess as long as you understand kind of the lingo and the behavior, you're, you're given a sense of intimacy, but that intimacy doesn't go beyond a certain point, like, like a, a real deep, um, one-on-one -on -one intimacy. It's kind of filtered and, and in a way it kind of sounds like, a like a church, uh, you go to a church, you learn the lingo, you're affirmed, you kind of go through a confession of some sort and say, I, I, I send or, or like I, I, I have this dysphoria and then everybody says, well, we're going to wash you in the blood of the lamb and there you go. You're in. But don't. But um, so I can see that that could be a good thing. But at the same time, without a critical um, kind of substrata of discourse that could really easily be abused and turn into kind of like a very proselytizing sort of system or a system that eventually devolves into power groups and, and people like one-upping each other in different ways um, without Definitely. like this, this level of critical thinking. Um, so did you see that problem itself, like this lack of critical thinking or uh, this kind of abuse of power or like, were you perturbed or looking back, are you kind of perturbed by, um, the affirmation mentality, uh, with regards to like, do you think it was, uh, prone to abuse or do you think that it was just, uh, you used a word that was less dramatic than what I'm making things out to be. Just like, it was not productive. <laughs> it was basically just not productive. I definitely think that the conversations and the way it groups form around trans ideology and like trans feelings or not, not like trans feelings, but just any issue that arises in regard in relation to transgenderism is a hundred percent always prone to abuse. And I feel like 97% of the time it is abused. And I feel like that abuse isn't always conscious. So it's kind of like the church metaphor. It's in a way like, all of those churchgoers probably think they're doing the right thing by someone coming in, confessing, like, I've sinned, like, we'll, we'll cleanse you, we'll take care of you, like, you're one of us now, like, we'll protect you. I'm sure all of those people think they're doing something really great, but at the same time, it's always up to the individual to decide whether they want to join your group, be a part of your mission, what they want to do to help cleanse themselves. And that sense of independence is never really granted hmm. to a person as soon as they are confronted with oh, I think I'm experiencing whatever they're experiencing. So I feel like it's a it's a pretty big issue. I really don't think that in the recent years that we've been talking about this, especially as we create like new legislation and we create like new protections and we have all these critical discussions, there hasn't even been the initial discussion on an individual level. And I think it's kind of, I think it's kind of scary 
I mean, scary is not the perfect word, but it's kind of frightening to think that that's something that is so complex and at the same time understood so vaguely, except for the people who are in the in-group and know all the lingo and have a strong connection to each other. I think it's really hard to make like blanket statements or even have like a constructive conversation for everyone. And I think too, like having that in-group of, we all know the same lingo, like we all share the same thing is like the primary component that drives um, groups like this towards adopting abusive or manipulative um, mentalities or tendencies, even if it's not intentional, hmm. just because it creates this idea that anyone who doesn't have your experience or anyone who doesn't think the exact same way you do, and even sometimes someone who doesn't even know your lingo, which is not their fault, they just don't know because they've, they've never encountered it, um, they get written off as like, oh, you're transphobic oh, you're abusive, oh, you're manipulative, like all of these really in extreme um, accusations that really wouldn't come out if the situation was a bit more balanced. Like if we had a mm -hmm. bit more back and forth here. If there was accountability and not uh, accountability in the sense like where there was questioning going on and there was this constant mm -hmm. looking into that in-group and what is this lingo and, and a serious discussion on what these things mean. The interesting thing is, is that the, with uh, not necessarily just the trans stuff, but the, a lot of the tools that um, are being used are developed out of queer theory, which is built out of postmodernism, which is intentionally obfuscant, uh, mm -hmm. intentionally murky, intentionally subjective, um, aggressively anti-objective, um, and, and which is really prone to abuse, especially when it's when it breaks loose out of the academy where it was mm -hmm. born. And it's interesting. Did you see pushback um, when somebody started like going to these groups and say, you know, this isn't for me or uh, the, the whole detrans detransition. How are people treated when they start detransitioning? How were you, or did you see people before you start to detransition? Um, I actually really didn't see anyone before me detransition. Um, me and Helena have known each other for about three years. So she was the first person to bring up to me this concept of like detransitioning. Um, cause we've been, we've been pretty close friends for a while now. Um, but detransitioners in general are seen as like, you weren't ever really trans or you weren't ever really sure about your transition. And it's like, I was pretty sure. I mean, I, to stab myself in the leg once a week for 14 oh. months on end. I mean, I'm, I was pretty sure that was You're the right dedicated. move for me. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So it's the sense that, Oh, well, you were never really one of us or you never really experienced what we experienced. And I feel like that's a really toxic way to view the situation, mm -hmm. especially since gender dysphoria for one has not been extensively studied over a long, significant period of time, and medical professionals don't have an intense um, and deep understanding of it, or even the best ways to treat it in all kinds of cases. It's such a unexplored field at the moment. Um, hmm. So, right, like I, I really think that detransitioners and desisters, like people who identified as trans, but then but never transitioned, and then suddenly. Um, stop identifying that way are subject to a lot of accusations and a lot of misconceptions about what they believe, what they think, their identity. I mean, it's mm -hmm. like the whole turf thing. I get called turf all the time now. Yeah. And a lot of, and a lot of my old 
um, friends who were trans identified, whether they identified in like a binary trans way or as non-binary, I've lost a lot of them, not necessarily like directly, but since being open about detransitioning, they've just not one, not really wanted to hang out, you know, have either like unfollowed me on Twitter, like Hmm. don't really want to engage anymore, which is interesting because it's just one facet of like my life and my beliefs and my identity. But yet somehow it becomes this all encompassing, like you're no longer trustworthy kind of thing. That is a very strong symbol to me that it's the, it's an intimacy that's formed entirely out of agreement uh, which is external to ex- experience. Like there's this, uh, there's this language that people have all agreed to. Like there's this game board that you're interacting on, but like the, the relationship, if you move away from that game board, like you lose your connection to the person, the per the personal relationship never supersedes that, that kind of that box. Or if you, uh, or it, it was never strong enough that somebody would be willing to let you go from the game or from this set of rules and still want to persist in a friendship with you. It, it just seems like the, it seems false in a way that this, this group is promising uh, community um, mm-hmm. under certain rules that aren't the same rules in which a true community is formed, perhaps. Exactly. And I think it's really interesting because it's like, at the core, what should be at the, well, what essentially should be at the core of the trans community and what brings us all together is the shared feeling of dysphoria, however that manifests, because it ultimately leads to the creation of this identity. And I still experience dysphoria and I still care about people who experience dysphoria. It's just that I have found other ways outside of identifying outside of myself and engaging in experimental like medical treatments that haven't been studied for long enough to be proven to me that this is safe and I trust Mm this um and just the decision to move away from that and find other ways to confront my dysphoria and cope with it and just try to love myself and move forward in my life living as a dysphoric person Hmm. it's interesting how that has so much of a impact on the relationships that people that I've formed through trans identity what are some of the ways that you've um confronted and and coped with uh your dysphoria (laughs) i feel like every time i say this it sounds like such a loser but therapy is really great like even if you're not like intensely like mentally ill or anything which i feel like is the perception of going to therapy like you have to be like this close to death or something but therapy is really great for managing all kinds of life stressors and all kinds of symptoms all kinds of things going on um i've I found that going to CBT therapy has helped a lot since so much of the, of my dysphoria revolves around um, negative cognitions that I tend to have. Mm-hmm. So it's really nice to have that as a resource. And also, CBT is cognitive behavioral therapy. It is. Yeah. yeah. It's super cool. Um, and then also making an active effort to form relationships and friendships with people outside of my usual like community groups. So people who have different interests, different views, different values than I, and just forming relationships based on like what we share has been really eye opening because it just reminds me that the world isn't so small. Like the world's really big. Like things aren't as dire and as serious as they are in like a really minuscule interaction. Um, mm. So just prioritizing that and also prioritizing things that make me feel good about my body. Started working out. That's fun. 
I really like traveling. It makes me feel like hmm. I'm not so like alone in myself. It's really nice to see different parts of the world, gauge different people. So just honestly allowing myself to enjoy the world without letting myself stop me from enjoying the world, essentially. Uh, yeah, yeah. And would you say that it seems like there could be a danger with um, certain aspects of the online or just the LGBTQ, certain LGBT communities could use some branching out from themselves or, or not being so, so much a support group that becomes the, the house in which you live your entire life. It seems like mm -hmm. it, there's, there might be a problem or people who are experiencing dysphoria might, that might for some people actually heighten that actually heighten their discomfort with the world actually heighten uh, the problems and, and cause them to not find other solutions. Um, and I don't mean to diagnose the whole community. I don't mean to be a bigot or anything like that, but it, it just seems like, like, and this is just a problem with any given community that has like a, a standard way of, of cementing the, the community together. It can be unhealthy itself. Um, and it can do the opposite of what it's trying to do, nominally trying to do, which is to help people. Um, I definitely agree. I really, I think I experienced that in my own journey time and time again, where every time I was introduced to a new way of thinking about the lingo or a new peer group, it always felt like it was just further solidifying how damaged I was because in a way trans identity made me feel like I was just always going to be a victim. Hmm. And I think that constant like victimhood complex that is affirmed just becomes really, really damaging over time. And I say damaging in the sense of, so for instance, like a common trope is, and a lot of trans circles is that like trans people of color have it worse, have it the worst. And as a black person, I mean, I used to be, I used to be of the idea that, oh, that makes sense. Like life's really hard in America when you're African American, like that makes a lot of sense. And then being trans is really hard. So yeah, that makes sense. Right. Like that's math, but it's really not like that. Like huh. it's just like that, that, that is such a, that is such a blanket statement for what can be widely different experiences. I mean, black people can be conservative, Black people can be wealthy, black people can be poor, black people can be liberal. That has nothing to do with like a sense of like oppression that comes with developing like a trans identity. I, was, I explained that a little convoluted. No, but... no, uh, that, that's a that's a theme that that I've run into too, where um, where progressivism writ large um, takes this sociological understanding of groups. And and these groups and looks at the disparities between, let's just say, the white and the black. This is the big mm -hmm. American disparity, um, the, the great running narrative for our constant being at each other's throats. Um, so you have the whites and the blacks. And on average, the whites have always had it much, much better than the blacks um, on average. Therefore, every given individual is going to be better off. Uh, every in given individual white person is going to be better off than any given individual black person. And it's that, that leap of logic that actually reduces people and dehumanizes people and then, mm -hmm. and then saddles people with all this either victimization or oppression, uh, 
uh, you know, I guess, uh, privilege, right? And privilege is now a bad thing. And so you're saddled with privilege or you're saddled with victimization. And then what can you actually do to break out of that? Because this narrative is all of history is like resting on our shoulders now. Um, unless like we just have this really bad, bitter contention of people, uh, you know, paying homage to the sufferers and, and reaffirming their own victimization or reaffirming that they're, they're privileged or whatever like that. And it just doesn't seem to me to actually get to the root of human suffering and, and allow for true human, uh, the, the, the human spirit to really flourish beyond that narrative, that, that story. So it, it's, it's like a story with only one outcome, you know, it's the exact right? opposite of a game story with like multiple <laughs> branching outcomes. Yeah. It just, affirms the tension in the same way that just hearing the same victimization dogma just affirms your dysphoria. Like it mm. having this back and forth that doesn't go anywhere just further affirms how disadvantaged you feel and how out of place you feel and alienated you feel. And then in every single time you, you make what should be a step towards happiness or like a step towards whatever your ultimate end goal is it's like oh that wasn't enough because i still feel really crappy so now it's like what's the next thing mm, mm, hmm. um were you given a choice like in your in your mind uh, i don't mean this to be rude but no, you brought okay. up you brought up um race were you given a choice like i could go down the i could be swept up in the racial um activism thing or the trans rights activism thing uh, because it seems like there's certain threads of activism writ large and and race is one way that it manifests and then the lgbtq community is another place where it manifests certain s similar behaviors happen in both groups were you ever pulled to combine those two or to interact on an activist level on a racial category definitely my first year at college was wild <laughs> like <laughs> I was on the council for our LGBT um, student group, and I also lived in our house as a freshman because oh. I was like, well, I'm black and trans, so I deserve to live in the house. And somehow they thought that was a good enough reason. So <laughs> I did. It was kind of a good flex. It was kind of like, yeah, I live in a house. So you guys live on campus or live in dorms, but whatever. <laughs> um, <laughs> silliness aside, though, hmm. it was really exhausting to know that every single time race was ever brought up for any reason i was like expected to be the one to comment on it you were like, the there authority. was no room exactly like, there was no like open discussion it was just like oh let jesse say that or let jesse talk about that but then at the same time i also experienced the opposite where it was like i wasn't allowed to share my voice at all as a result of uh, also my salt lamp fell over sorry okay. <laughs> i wasn't able to share my um voice at all due to people due to the people who actually have like a sense of like internalized racism and feel like their voice is more important when it comes to discussing race issues. So there was never really like a sense of balance. And then I remember I had to make so many different like speeches about the intersection of race and gender identity when it was like, now when I look back on it, I'm like itchy. Cause I'm like, ah, oh, all of that was basically just based on like, tumblr posts and misinterpreted information like it was just so bad and yet they were still like oh my god thank you you taught me so much <laughs> that's so sad <laughs> i know um it's kind of 
funny though because a lot of the kids from that group my first year have either since stopped believing in a lot of the nonsense and have reached out to me and like hey like it's really cool that you're detransitioned and think more logically now and I was like yeah thanks <laughs> do, do you feel um the same uh similar sense of relief in letting go of thinking of yourself as uh, having a racial identity as well as a gender identity? Did both of those, it seems like you had to assume those in a performative manner. Um, yes. Uh, like almost professionally, you had to be the professional uh, black trans person, you know, like uh, not that you were tokenized at all, but um, w was it similar, like, like letting go or do you, do you think that there's, um, I guess the the ultimate question is like where do you think we are at on a racial level in the racial discussion and where could we be going with that as well as the trans discussion are, are there similar moves that we can be making in on both of those fronts to make more harmony if that should be the goal I think I have let go of a sense of having a racial identity in a way but it's been kind of unintentional it's it's just been part of like this journey of just letting myself be a person first and foremost. Um, and I feel like that's kind of what we need to break it, break all of this discourse down into just thinking about ourselves and other people as people first yeah. and then thinking about, okay, so what is the history between us? Like we are people, but what is our history? Hmm. And then from there being like, so where are we now? And then from there, how do we make things great for both of us? Which hmm. sounds so simple but I really feel like there's just been so much tension in the past, like I guess the past decade where I have felt like such an intense need to always pick a side. Mm. Even if I don't particularly believe in something a hundred percent of, or if I am not a hundred percent informed about a particular issue, it's just a sense of, Oh, well, because of my black sisters and brothers, I have to believe this. We have to stand by this together because no one else will. It's just us, right? Which also isn't necessarily true because there's so much allyship to allyship to the need for protection of black civil rights, mm -hmm. the protection of just our art, our culture, our freedoms. Mm -hmm. um, but there's just so much tension around it. I feel like it just builds tension to continue mm -hmm. to move with this idea that, oh, like every single white person in America is out to get us. And that is the end of it. They're all rich conservatives and they all hate us and they're all racist and they all want us dead. I feel like that's a new understanding from people my age who've just been caught up in like a lot of the intense like identity politics discourse in like the recent few years. But yeah, I feel like it's been super unproductive. And even to me, it's just further perpetuated the sense that like I'm a victim and it actually started making me feel like genuinely scared to like go outside and live my life. Cause I was like, Oh my God, I've seen so many videos of black people being shot by cops on the streets. I, I don't know if I can leave my house today and go to Walgreens, but it's like, it's not like that. Like police hmm. brutality is this extremely serious and important issue. But at the same time to tell people that they're at risk of, um, that they're at risk of being attacked just because they leave the house or do a very normal task is an insane proposal to me. The um, the similar the the, the similar uh, things that I'm worried about with the trans uh, the discourse around trans identity. There's the same things, different words around mm -hmm. the racial 
thing. And I guess we can just say it's all identity politics. I went to a college um, that had a major meltdown almost two years ago, um, like th- just a stellar meltdown where the black students were taught that they're ultra oppressed and the white students were taught that they're ultra oppressive. Um, and then the whole school got taken over by this huge protest and they live streamed it all and it just became this big deal. I'm still dealing with they're still dealing with the fallout. I'm still dealing with the story because so many things happen. You should look up Evergreen Holy State God. College. But um, okay. and that's when I started doing this YouTube stuff. And, and at, at, at a certain point, probably about a year ago, I got so exhausted with the racial discourse that I'm like, I really can't go the, go down this anymore because there's people have so much strong feelings about this and there's so much pain wrapped up in this that I cannot, I can argue against your points because they're not good points, but I can't really help you with your trauma and I can't really help you with your pain. I don't have the power. I don't have the capacity. And I understand why all the progressives are acting this way because they think that they can deal with your pain and they can't. Um, there's, you know, there's different things that you need to do. And so the, the discussion, I just had to walk away. Um, and I, I got involved with this trans issue because I saw a, a very small subset of people, um, being misrepresented by these motherfucking activists and, mm-hmm. and the activists are going around shitting all over these people who have a really hard life to begin with. Um, and again, I was met with the choice. I could go through and I could criticize the activists and I can go through their Twitter and I can go through and I can mock their videos and I can do all this mockery, but that's just making their voices even stronger. I, Mm -hmm. we need to figure out like a better way of going about doing this and like getting into this issue and letting the trolls troll and letting the haters hate and letting the activists, you know, block us all. Um, <laughs> while while they're doing that, we can actually have good discussion and pinpoint Turf these problems. Into an yeah, <laughs> yeah, astroturf us. <laughs> oh, that's such a good point. I feel like okay, so the trans community definitely piggybacks off all racial rights movements. Yeah, the BLM, and no, that's one thing they're saying Literally. a lot. Like you can't this. It's the same thing. If you kick a trans woman out of sports, it's the same thing as kicking a black woman out of sports. Like they're they're co-opting um, the civil rights language now to yeah. make this point with the bathrooms. Like it's just like segregation. It's just like Jim Crow. It's like oh, well, I go down that road. <laughs> like maybe not because. I, I, I'm so like infuriated. I know we're just like talking about it, but it's so infuriating to listen to because I'm like, literally you using a gender neutral bathroom in Whole Foods is not comparable to segregation at all. Like, it's just not, it's just not, it's so rough. Yeah. Like Uh, I I can see this. This is totally offensive. I should probably cut it out, but I can see the next step is like somebody, um, equating their testosterone shot with kick, picking cotton like that's like <laughs> you, like like it's just gonna go there you know it's just like it's gonna eventually go there and there's no way to stop it <laughs> it's just so bad it's just like oh who thought this was right like who thought this was a good idea oh it's like we all forgot how to read and also think huh but it is really true that the trans community does put the weight of handling trauma on everyone who interacts with them. Like you made such a good point, like in the same way that white people cannot as a collective, at least the individual white person within the collective of white people cannot bear the brunt of 
all of racist history and segregation and legislation and personal trauma and all of those horrific, awful things. But in the same sense that like just any person who is either unfamiliar with trans ideologies, unfamiliar with you specifically, cannot bear all of your personal trauma that has led to the importance of your trans identity in your life. They can't fix that for you. All they can do is just respect you and Mm. talk to you and stay true in their own beliefs and ideas. And either you'll click or you won't, but it's not their responsibility to carry your emotional needs all the time. Did you, when you were a trans man, um, did you experience like negative social blowback and how did you deal with that when you experienced discrimination, either micro or macro, big or small? Mm -hmm. The thing is, is that like everything I called transphobic or like discriminatory that might've happened to me now looking back on it, I'm just like, it probably wasn't that malicious. Save for one time when I got punched in the face by some random guy on the train. I don't know why. I'm pretty sure he was on drugs, but and I was just on my way to class. But like, this is Chicago too. Are you on the red and line? It is Chicago. Yeah, it was on the red line. Okay. Literally. <laughs> At nine in the morning, he just took my glasses and just like chucked them and then punched me in the face. And I was just like, "Whoa, man!" I was like, "What do you want? Do you want money?" And then the train stopped, and then he just like ran off. And I was like, "Okay, well, good morning." That's a good time. But that was like the only time I think I've ever encountered like actual violence. But I think it was literally just because he was on drugs. I was just texting on my phone. So I don't know. But everything else that I considered like gut-wrenchingly like transphobic, like being misgendered or I don't know, like someone like it was always it always came down to just being misgendered, which is. Did it erase your existence? I sure thought it did. Huh. I sure had to go home and angrily tweet on my private Twitter about it. <laughs> like, oh my God, you guys, you would not believe what happened to me today. <laughs> but it really did not. And I feel like it's so unproductive to hmm. act like misgendering is an act of violence. I've also seen that rhetoric recently that misgendering someone or dead naming. It, dead naming or whatever it is, is an act of violence. And I feel like that one completely minimizes what actual like hate crime violence is. And that can happen to trans people. Like trans people can actually be hate crimed violently, but someone making a misstep in conversation is not a direct act of violence. And most of the time it's not always malicious and involved pretty, it was just conversation and a mutual understanding of each other. Mm-hmm. Right. So I don't know. I'm just, I'm very exhausted from this idea that very minute things can be exasperated into these ginormous social things that they're not. It seems like once you accept that being misgendered is an act of violence or an erasure of your identity, you are actually letting go of the ability to resolve that situation by being an effective communicator and being a empathetic person in your own right and kind of growing larger than that minuscule 
problem, which makes you even more sensitive and more sensitive. And and as your feelings of sensitivity grow, in a way, your your spirit or like your strength as an individual kind of shrinks and, and becomes like atrophied in a way. And then you have to go and, and whine like a little baby on the Internet because um, that's your last out out. Uh, uh, outpouring of of individuality like like you're given this ability to have all this power as long as you act in this certain way and as long as you react in a certain way but beyond that you're you're just the power is actually seeping out of you the the agency and the totally there's no longer any sense of personal accountability and then you can just kind of let anything happen to you and then you get even more caught up in this feeling of victimization now, when someone misgenders you, if you've accepted it's an act of violence, it erases your identity. The next time you go to the grocery stores and the cashier is just like, oh, have a nice day, sir. And you're like, oh, actually, it's ma'am. And you go home and you tweet about it. You know that the Internet is the only place that can affirm you. And it's the last, like, straw you have at a grasp of self, like wow. a grasp at your sense of self. And it's it's really harsh. And part of that realization since... I was just so heavily involved in both like activism. Um, I had like, like a couple internships over the past two years. So I've had to use social media for different projects. Um, and just seeing that pattern continue just made me really realize that is something that I just don't want to ascribe to. I don't want to give my strength to strangers, essentially. Hmm. And that their perception of me is always going to be the thing that keeps me feeling whole or like keeps me feeling sane or a loved or appreciated when those feelings should come from inside of me and also the legitimate support I have from the people around me. Mm -hmm. And what was, uh, it, it seems like just like, um, I, I, I think it was, uh, I think it was Helen, but maybe it wasn't. Um, I, I asked her which was harder to transition out of the, the ideology or like the physical transition. Um, but for you, was the trans was the detransition like? Did it dovetail with like leaving that way of thinking, or did did it not match up? And one thing followed from the other. Like, w what was your experience of detransition? Why did you detransition, and how was it uh, with regards to the ideology as well as the physicality? I think it's when I went on a ski trip to Colorado. This is like where I always pinpoint when my brain was just like, oh, I've woken up. No more of this. Um, but so we you were, were out of skiing. oxygen. Yeah, literally <laughs> oxygen deprived at the top of the slopes, skiing for the first time, being really bad at it. And then I remember we had to go get our shoes and I was like freaking out because I was like, oh, are they going to give me men's shoes or female shoes? Like what's going to happen? I was like, oh, man, because oh. like my name is so androgynous. I was just like, oh, God, which is intentional and I like it. But still, I was ah, I was freaking out. And then they just gave me like women's shoes because my feet are small. And then I remember just being like, why does that matter? Like, why did I literally just have an anxiety attack in the middle of a ski shop? Like thousands of miles away from my apartment over shoes huh. when he's never going to see me again. They're never going to think about this again. I'm the only one who's internalizing this moment. Huh. And I particularly don't care in this moment. So it was just that first inkling of, I want to have a good time and I don't want to focus on something like that. I want to enjoy my time. Huh. It started to snowball into this realization. Like I want to do, enjoy my life. I don't want to stab myself once a week. I don't want to, 
have to do all this maintenance just to upkeep what eventually started to seem like a fake persona because I mean, it's not like me. It's not like just acting art. It's not even like I was particularly acting different all the time, but just calling how I act normally a different gender, a different persona was just shrinking myself and just hmm. making everything that I am just basically this automatic, this automated persona. I just wasn't about it anymore. Um, and I think the hardest thing was just moving away from the ideology, which is why even after the ski trip and like realizing these things slowly and gradually, I was like, well, maybe I'm just non-binary um, just because it's been indoctrinated into me so many times. Well, if you have this gender expression or if you feel this way about yourself or you act this way or whatever, then, you know, and then also these feelings that are pretty normal, honestly, that I feel like a lot of people share of, you know, gender roles are really toxic. Gender stereotypes are really toxic. All this is really oppressive. I feel like the average person agrees with those statements. Hmm. And those very generic, like basic progressive statements are interwoven into every principle of like trans ideology, just with more like built on top of it. Hmm. So I think I had to really just strip away like all of the top layers and get down to, well, that is my core value but I don't have to ascribe to all of these things built on top of that core hmm. value if they don't align with what I want out of my life. Hmm. It sounds like a, a drastic lightening of your cognitive load. Yeah. yeah. It how really did, was. How did, your, um, how did your feelings, how did your behavior, how did people treat you differently change? How did that change as you began to detransition? So I lost friends on one hand. It wasn't so formal as, oh, I don't, I don't want to talk to you anymore because you're detransitioned and I hate that. It's just, we just, we drifted apart, just stopped agreeing on things, which is fine. I'm okay with that. I don't have any resentment there. Um, but as far as like coworkers and classmates and just people at the grocery store, just everyday life, it, I realized that it really didn't matter. Like at the end of the day, like, I pretty much just walked into my job. I was like, hey, so I think I don't want to use these pronouns for myself anymore. And I think I'm just going to go back to this. And they're just like, okay, sounds good. I was like, wow, really? I just had to do that. <laughs> so it was pretty simple on a professional level, on like a functional level. The only real difficulties were just with like peers. But at the same time, my friends who stuck around, who who really supported that decision, like, well, obviously that sounds great. I want what's best for you. Like, I still love and care for you regardless. You're still my friend. Those people are still really important in my life and still mean a lot to me. And it's really nice to just know that regardless of what journey I go on, I'll have people in my corner who are willing to just support me, be there for me, and try to understand, like, what happened, right, where I was coming from. Mm -hmm. I don't know. So, yeah. Have you or your group um, interacted with trans men um, since uh, founding the Peak Resilience Project? Hmm. We've gotten a lot of really interesting, like, comments and um, emails from trans men, especially on, like, our first two, like, YouTube videos. I know a really prominent trans man YouTuber has commented. He's also tweeted at me before, um, which is fine. Like, they're, none of them have been particularly, like, nasty. They're just 
of the same pattern of, oh, well, it's really nice to hear that you're talking about detransitioning because I just want to make sure I'm really sure before I do this. Or it's kind of like, oh, it's kind of scary hearing you talk about this, but at least I know I'm really sure. Mm-hmm. Which is kind of funny because I thought that way like three years ago mm-hmm. before deciding to take testosterone. I was like, like oh, I'm really sure that I, I don't need to look at anything. I, I know what I'm talking about. Hmm. So in a way, it's just kind of like I obviously don't want to project on anyone because everyone's decisions are their own ultimately. And transition works for some people. It doesn't work for other people. I'm not going to like sit here and be like, um. I think they're all going to detransition in like four years because I, I don't know their lives. I don't know them, but I think it's pretty telling of just the experience in the trans community that we can be so open about our detransition experience and just our return to, I guess, like what our most like baseline state is because I don't really identify as anything. I just am, you yeah. know, yeah. it's interesting how the return to that state invokes such a panicked response and such a defensive response. So I think it's just like really telling how the community is so tied to that box essentially of this is like what we share together. And if you change anything about it, then that completely impacts our relationship. Hmm. Do you see a need for, uh, strong activism for lgbtq community and will that activism ever end does it always need to go on and is that something that kind of feeds the uh the fervency of the group that it's like this continual war i mean i know that there should be there's more work to do for sure Mm -hmm. um I think we're both participating in this work. What is this issue actually about? And what can the public ascertain about this so we can make informed decisions uh, for our society? But um, it just seems that activist culture constantly needs another panic. Like just like anti-racism as a movement needs racism to exist. Um, Mm -hmm. And that's one of my problems with it. Like you're kind of doing the opposite of what you want to do, but I'm not going to get into that fight, but you know, um, but do you, but do you, I guess my question is, I, I just want to know, like, what can the LGBT community do that is, that is healthy and that doesn't perpetuate this, the rise of these really big bullies in it? Um, I think we really need to let go of identity politics I really think we need to let go of this concept of labels are the most important thing about a person, like Hmm. what they label, like their sexuality or gender. We just need to just throw that out. Just throw it in the trash bin. Seriously. It's so pointless because there are actually important issues that face the LGBT community. And to answer your other question, I don't think that at least in America, the fight for LGBT rights needs to last for a particularly long time. I feel like after a set amount of time, and a lot of like community and like collective planning and activism, we can just get the basic civil rights we need covered essentially. So instead of focusing on all these labels and having all this infighting about what's like correct to call yourself or each other, or what's correct to do or behave because that's nonsense. It goes nowhere. It's to just prioritize the actual issues that face the community 
that are completely separate to any kind of label. So for instance, like the HIV and AIDS crisis, a lot of people in the community are completely uneducated about HIV or AIDS, don't really know anything about it. They're just like, oh, you can just like go to Planned Parenthood. They have no idea how like many people it affects. Hmm. Um, their homelessness is a huge thing among a lot of LGBT youth, especially in California. I think there was some statistic. I'm not going to quote it accurately, but just that a significant number in even cities as liberal and populated as Los Angeles, where a significant portion of the LGBT youth population is homeless or is at least at risk for homelessness. Um, and there's also like issues of like family rejection, mental suicide. However, I do have an opinion that we shouldn't be too invested in like family rejection because that's prone to a lot of abuse, especially in like the trans community because it's like, Oh, your parents don't want you to transition at age four. Well, they're okay, abusive. Okay. Yeah. I'll let you transition. Okay. Yeah. That kind of thing. Yeah, but, that should be more about outreach rather than uh, overreach uh, right, with the parents. Right, exactly. So I think it's just prioritizing the legitimate social crises that are around right now and figuring out what we can do as like a task force to tackle them and raise awareness as necessary. But I'm really wary of this idea of raising awareness because that's also really prone to like pushing our particular like ideology. Me. Look at me, raise awareness know, of right? myself. It's kind <laughs> of nar- it's it's prone to narcissistic yeah. personalities because they're really good at raising awareness. <laughs> Do you, Please would be you, aware that I feel things. Would you guys? Would you think? And okay, this is probably you just said we need to let go of labels. But what do you think the relationship between Pink Resilience Project and the LGBT community is, or where do you guys want to take it? Um, do you guys want to be a subsidiary? Do you guys want to bring people on board? Do you want to be in dialogue with that? Uh, are you guys? It seems like you're positioned to go in a lot of different directions, helping parents um, of children who are experiencing gender dysphoria, um, like. Where's where's the activism that you guys are, are thinking about going or you yourself are going forward with the project? I think the four of us right now are prioritizing conversation and mm. genuine, open conversation. We, um, me, Kiara and Helena are attending an event in NYC next week, which is really exciting. We're going to be talking to a lot of different women um a lot of different people interested in just our experiences and what we can offer and they're from all walks of life from like all kinds of different ideas and ideologies and i'm really excited because i've never had the opportunity to have an open dialogue about gender at all before hmm. so i'm really excited to have a legitimate like discourse and then just see like what we all value. And it's also going to be a great time for us to outside of like our own personal experiences, like really figure out like what are our like core values that we're absolutely about. I mean, the main one for sure. I mean, it's in the name. It's just resilience, like in the face of any adversity, like finding your own like inner strength to be resilient and to just prosper and keep moving forward. Um, so that's the main goal for us. Um, we, we really do enjoy interviewing and then like outreaching to other people, like pretty much anyone who wants to talk to us, because I mean, Hey, like we got to talk about it to somebody. You guys love talking. That's for sure. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah. And then in the future, I think we want to make a point of creating some kind of guide. I have no idea what that will look like, but just a way 
just some kind of resource to give people that isn't, oh, you're dysphoric. Well, here's transition. It's the opposite. Like, oh, you're dysphoric. Well, here's a million different options, but also I'm not going to present it to you. Like you just have options to fix your problem. It's just, how can you Hmm. deal with this and like know yourself in the midst of this? Hmm. So again, this sense of like resilience, like, okay, so you have a new problem and it's called dysphoria. So how do you stay resilient? It's, it's so nice. Like the amount of support we've gotten is like astronomical. I barely understand how to process it, but at the same time, it's so encouraging because you're right. It's obviously such an emergent need for us to be opening just this world for discussion and safe discussion. Like I'm not going to sit here and patronize anyone. Hmm. And I feel like that's just so necessary to know that there are people out there who genuinely care about other humans and genuinely care about doing what's best for each other. However that manifests. All right, Jess, I, I got to go um, get ready for a friend coming into town. So thanks awesome. for your time. Have a great time. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. You're so great to talk to you. Seriously. This is oh, a great time. Thanks. Yeah. You got a great, you got, you, you have a great um, verve and, and charisma. Uh, oh, thank you. you. You, I bet you get really good tips being a barista. Oh my God, I do. People love me. Yeah. Regulars love me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I always work that tip jar. Oh yeah, me too. Yeah. I'm always like, have a great day. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, have a great day.